We're getting a late start for the Monday episode of Today in Ohio, a little bit later in the day. Hope you were patient and waited for it. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi for a robust discussion. But before it starts, I want to give the podcast audience the same chance we're giving a whole lot of other people to weigh in on the topics they think we should poll Northeast Ohio about. I wrote a piece over the weekend laying out some examples, asking people to rank them or send other ideas. I have been bombarded by responses, which I've scanned over but haven't collated, and it's very interesting. Not the topics I would have thought, and others that rose to the top, it appears. I'll know more after we go through it. But want to make sure the podcast audience also weighs in. You could find what I wrote online if you search on cleveland.com under Chris Quinn and maybe Tom Sutton, who will be at Baldwin Wallace doing the poll for us. And you could see the topics I laid out, or you could just send an email to me with what you think we should be polling about at C-Q-U-I-N-N at cleveland.com. That's C-Quinn at cleveland.com. We'll be talking later this week probably about the topics that bubbled to the surface. Let's begin. What were fully licensed massage therapists saying about the Deshaun Watson case when they gathered for their convention in Cleveland last week, a convention planned long before the Watson scandal involving sexual abuse of massage therapists became a big national story. Laura, we were all a bit chagrined to see we were going to have massage therapists coming to Cleveland thinking, what are the odds in a year when massage therapists are the biggest news story? What were they saying? Yeah, it seemed a bit ironic, but they planned this way before. So they said he should have a harsher sentence and that it's very, it's already hard to talk about their profession to people because they don't understand how professional they are. And this just sheds more bad light on them and puts them in a bad position. So they talked about what needs to be done going forward. The conference topics focus on education, ethics, vetting potential customers, and setting boundaries. They talked about renewed diligence, about where they work and how they do their jobs. And I love what this therapist said. She said, I'm dressed in medical clothing. I'm wearing scrubs. I'm trying to give that impression that you're here for therapeutic treatment and there's nothing else. She also says she keeps a large wooden spoon nearby in case someone tries something inappropriate, which is like this poor person that she's doing her job and she has to protect herself with a wooden spoon. It's kind of mind boggling. Yeah, I was. Uh, they also mentioned some of the things lawyers said in the Watson case about happy endings and things. And mm-hmm. you could tell they were not at all happy about that. This is not that kind of massage. And no. they, they said when lawyers talk like that, it just it just brings out more of the, the ex- expectations from people. Uh, right. I mean, they, they seemed like they were hot, like they, they are tired of this. They shouldn't have to deal with it, and the world needs to get it together and stop expecting it. Absolutely. And the Associated Press, actually, they did this story, and they did a nice job and had uh, photos of probably eight massage therapists, you know, as portraits standing there. And they were not, you know, like hiding. They were like, this is my job. I'm proud of what I do. You people need to respect it. Massage therapy has been a licensed profession since 1916 in Ohio. Ohio was actually the first state to license operators, which didn't know that. And 45 states regulate or certify them. They're covered. Massage therapy is covered by Medicare Advantage programs, some insurance, like it's a legitimate practice of medicine and, and therapy. And they're tired of being treated like, you know, prostitutes, basically. 
Yeah, John Tucker reported that thing about Ohio being mm-hmm. first in a story a few about a month ago. But You're one right. of the things that came across strongest in his story was that anybody can call themselves a massage therapist, mm-hmm. whether they're licensed or not. And if you look at social workers, you can't do that. You can't claim to be a social worker in Ohio unless you're a licensed social worker. And it's surprising that anybody can hang out a shingle. It's like, can you hang out a shingle saying I'm a doctor? I guess, you know, there's some of that going on in the Pennsylvania Senate race. But interesting story by AP. You're right. They did a nice job. That's why we use their story instead of sending somebody over. It's today in Ohio. You know, Lisa, you could make an argument that Ohio Governor Mike DeWine declining to debate Jim Renacci in the Republican primary made sense because Renacci was kind of a joke candidate and to debate him would have given him credibility. But now DeWine is in a battle with a real candidate in Nan Whaley, the Democrat in the general election. Is he trying to avoid debating her? What about debates in the Ohio Senate race? Well, in the the governor's race, uh, Nan Whaley has accepted several invites for multiple debates, but Mike DeWine, his staff is saying, well, they're looking, there's, there's a, there's a debate proposal for uh, 10, uh, August, I'm sorry, October 11th or October 12th in Columbus. That's being held by Nexstar, which owns WJW in Cleveland and TV stations in Columbus, Youngstown and Dayton. Um, but they, their staff, DeWine staff says they're looking at this debate proposal, but he says that he and Nan Whaley will likely meet in editorial board endorsement meetings, some of which are streamed online, which we do at cleveland.com with our, our, uh, endorsement meetings. He says, I've had more press conferences than any other governor, and I've answered more media questions. And he didn't debate before the primary this year, but he did have three debates in 2018 with his then-candidate Richard Cordray. Uh, Whaley, of course, jumped on this hesitation by DeWine. She says he's too scared to debate me and defend his record across the state. Well, I, 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 he should debate her. I mean, that's part of the, the process. Let voters see you going up against each other. I appreciate that they come in and talk to the editorial board. I do think our format is, is much better than some of the traditional debates where you're basically asked the question and give talking points, uh, in part because the candidates can go at each other and we cut off any kind of nonsense talking (laughs) points. So, so you get some decent exchanges. It's a, it's a pretty good situation, but for the good of the order, he should be appearing to, to talk to her. I mean, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that he is not doing it. I, again, you saw Kasich do this with Ed Fitzgerald. He wouldn't debate him because Ed Fitzgerald was a joke candidate by the end. So why give credibility there? But this is a real, real election. Now, Nan Whaley has not run much of a campaign. Laura Johnson and I were talking about it this morning. It's like, where's Nan Whaley's campaign? But still, she's a longtime mayor and running against him. He should be on the stage. What about the Senate? So uh, for uh, the race between J.D. Vance and uh, Tim Ryan, there are three debate invites. Uh, So Ryan has accepted three of them. There's one uh, September 26th in Youngstown, held by WFMS-TV. There's one October 4th in Hamilton, WLWT-TV. And there's one October 12th in Akron, and that's being held by the Ohio Debate Commission. So Ryan has accepted all of those debate dates. Vance, however, has accepted a debate 
in Cleveland on October 4th, which is the same date as the debate that Ryan accepted in Hamilton. So there's a little bit of confusion there on, you know, who's going to go to what debate there. Um, he, Vance's campaign says, well, the Hamilton debate, you know, that date was to be determined. So that's why they accepted the Cleveland one. But he has not, Vance has not accepted any other debates other than that one. Yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not surprised he's not accepting the Ohio Debate Commission. I should point out I used to be on that. I'm not anymore. But it's I think it's viewed partly as mainstream media and Vance has declared war on the mainstream media. I guess Fox 8 is not mainstream media, <laughs> uh, but we'll have to see. At least Vance has accepted. At least he will face off with Tim Ryan in a couple of venues. Uh, unlike DeWine. I think DeWine owes it to Ohioans to do that. He's right. He's been he's been available. He has lots of press conferences. He did all his wine with DeWine. But that's not the same as standing toe-to-toe mm. in public with the candidate you're facing off with. It's today in Ohio. Do we have our first case for a new Cleveland police oversight system set up by voters in a charter amendment in November? Leela, what are the details? Well, the victim in this case is Karima McCree-Wilson. In October 2019, she had called police to report that her father had thrown her to the ground, which caused her to hit her head, and, and that he had choked her and locked her out of the house. As an adult, she had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder related to some childhood trauma she'd experienced. And and when triggered, it could propel her into hysteria. And she manages this through therapy and identifying stressors, including being yelled at by men or accused of things that she didn't do. And so this incident with her dad had spiraled quickly out of control and, and, and she was traumatized and she ended up in a psychiatric hospital for three days. And then when she was discharged from the hospital, she went to her aunt's house in Glenville and there she got into an argument with a cousin, with a cousin and he punched her in the face and that sent her into a deep panic. And when she called 911, the call log noted that the caller quote, sounds mental So you can see how the bias was really mounting against her among Cleveland police. And when police officer Victor Claudio appeared on the scene, he was really sympathetic to the cousin and determined that McCree Wilson was, quote, not all there. So he suggested that she be committed to a mental health facility against her will. And basically, you know, according to her, he wrote her off as crazy and and failed to protect her from her aggressor in this domestic violence situation. So in May of 2020, She took her cause to the Office of Professional Standards, which is a Cleveland body that investigates allegations of police abuse and presents findings to the Civilian Review Board. And an investigator decided that Claudio should have treated the incident as domestic violence and arrested her cousin as the primary aggressor, which is Cleveland police policy. Um, Among the arguments that she eventually made to the Civilian Review Review Board, which heard her case during a hearing in February, was that her mental health status has no bearing whatsoever on whether or not she was assaulted. So that should not have caused them to just dismiss her in the way that they did. And so following her testimony, the Civilian Review Board sided with her and they called the incident with her cousin domestic violence and and that the officer's failure to arrest her cousin warranted a short suspension without pay for this officer. But they've decided that rather than act immediately, they're going to wait until this new oversight structure that was set up by the passage of Issue 24 last November is really locked into place. 
and that they feel really safe moving forward. That that waiting period is going to take some time, some months. They're considering this one of their first test cases of the new oversight structure that gives them disciplinary authority over the public safety department. So, so and, and there are some complexities to her case. So that's why they want to really so, nail it down. So if they went forward under the existing rules, it would be in an advisory role to the city on recommending discipline. But if they wait for the fully formed formal commission to be in place, they get to decide it. Is that the way it works? That's what it seems, because under the new structure, they get to decide it. Under the old structure, it was, you know, the buck stops with the chief. So, so, you know, they they want to make sure that there are no challenges to 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 this decision. It's um, interesting. And her case is complex. And it's interesting that they're the ones choosing to wait. That they're they're let's let's go with what the voters put in, and then let's let the cards fall where they may. Good story by John Tucker. Mm-hmm. It's today in Ohio. With the Ohio Supreme Court surprising many by giving new life to the Lake Erie wind turbine proposal, what's happening to get that project back on track and what needs to happen to get it built? Laura, it seems like everybody had kind of put away their stuff and gone home and they're racing back now, opening up the closet to pull it all back out and get moving. Yeah, kind of bringing the band back. And I told Pete Krause, who wrote the story, I was like, I thought this was dead. And he's like, nope. And I was like, okay, maybe I was the only one. But um, last time we talked about, I think on this podcast, the Ohio legislature had an act on it to allow a surcharge uh, to raise money for it. And federal grants were in jeopardy because the projects dragged on so long. So even the project's chief left and got another job. So now that they, the Supreme Court has struck down this lawsuit, and they can go forward. They've got to figure out who's going to lead it. And they've got to figure out if the company they were going to partner with to do it out, out of Europe is still interested. So they say they're working on it. They're hopeful the timing is right this time around. And of course, the plan is to build six wind turbines, eight to 10 miles off the shore of downtown Cleveland and establish this region as a hub for offshore wind industry. This is the demonstration wind project, but a lot of the controversy has been based on the idea that if this works, you get a whole lot more than six in the lake. Yeah. I mean, they still do need the money. They have the federal grant that has been Mm -hmm. extended so they can find the matching funds, but it sounds like they still need the state to come up with the money. That European company has one of those confusing names that has a period in it. So Yeah, I know. I went to edit the story and I was like, (laughs) I was like deleting. I was like, oh no, it's in every reference. Okay. This is not a mistake. Right. Fred, Fred period Olson renewables. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is one of those kind of hoity-toity companies. Companies that makes makes reporters blanch because their stories read like gibberish <laughs> every time you hit it. Anyway, it's uh, it's interesting that everybody was of the same mind we were. Like this, I don't know. This, Pete thought he wasn't, but I was like, I haven't heard anything about this all summer long. No, we reported well, on it a couple weeks ago that the that the lawsuit had been settled. Right, so. the lawsuit, but like no, 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 nobody lawsuit, was talking yeah. about the controversy. Nobody was like regular no. people were talking about this idea of wind uh, turbines well, in the lake. I hadn't heard a, a you know a, since and the head of it. it. The head of it is now uh, working for New Dave York, Karpinski, trying to put a wind yeah. farm. You know, yeah, so we in Lake lost Erie, in the in New Lake York, Erie, yeah. in, in Lake Erie. Yeah, yeah. So it, and so it, this is going to take like one hundred and seventy-three million dollars to finance and construct. It's got thirty-seven million dollars left of a federal grant, and they said the status of the remaining money 
grant money is stable, but they've got to show progress to keep it from being rescinded. So, I mean, they, they hope they can get other federal funds, but there's millions of dollars they need to figure out where those are going to come from. I don't know if it's because of Fox News telling people fibs or what, but when I sent out a text message to the tech subscribers about this last week, I was surprised at the divide among them, that they're they're questioning every aspect of it. You don't get enough bang for the buck and who's going to take these down and mm. how do they deteriorate and all that. Lots and lots and lots of questions from skeptics. And then about half the people were, we really need to do this to save the planet. So a lot of interest in this one, and Pete will be following it every step of the way because now we have more steps to follow. It's Today in Ohio. What is the story behind the rickety sit-away pedestrian bridge on Cleveland's east side, and why does Mayor Justin Bibb want to restore it and declare it a landmark? Lisa, when you look at the pictures of this thing, I don't think anybody in their right mind would walk across it now. It is falling apart but it's got a very interesting history. Yeah, this is a hidden piece of Cleveland that I knew nothing about until I read this story by Stephen Litt. This, uh, and it's a beautiful bridge. It's a pedestrian bridge. It's, uh, you know, it's 680 feet long. It's 159 feet over the uh, Kingsbury Run Valley. So this was built in 1930 over the Rapid Transit Service Area, three miles east, southeast of downtown in Kingsbury Run Valley. So this would be a little bit southwest of Kinsman, if you're trying to picture it. Um, It's a city-owned bridge, but back in 1966, an arsonist set fire to the wooden deck, and a lot of people saw this as kind of a symbolic severing of the mostly white Slavic village on one side of the valley and the mostly black Garden Valley area of Kinsman on the other side of the valley. So it's got historical, you know, significance, and it's a way to connect these neighborhoods back up again. So perspective architecture of Cleveland, along with the Burton Bell Carr Community Development Corporation and Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, are applying to get this bridge listed on the National Register of Historic Places. They're going to go this Thursday before the Cleveland Landmarks Commission for a listing as a city landmark. And these designations will help draw federal grants to leverage even more funding. The National Park Service has a couple of programs. They have an African-American Civil Rights Historic Preservation Fund they could tap into, and the History of Equal Rights Grant Program that would be specific to this project. Mayor Justin Bibb and City Hall are very enthusiastic about this project. Um, They say this is a way to kind of mend a kind of troubled time in Cleveland in the mid-60s when we had riots in Huff and and tensions arising between black and white neighborhoods. So uh, they see this as a way to kind of join these neighborhoods both, you know, figuratively and literally again. But but it's amazing because it's it's been sitting there basically rotting for half a century or more, mm-hmm. uh, and now suddenly there's this move to fix it. Kingsbury Run, I believe, is where even further back in history the torso murder bodies yes. were found. Yeah, yes. so it's it's been a, a, a interesting neighborhood for a long time. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I did not know about this until Steve Litt wrote it, and once again, Steve Litt has written a story that you can't put down. The guy is a I just looked at the photos of this thing in the slideshow that he included. It it looks like it belongs in like an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's got nothing. There's nothing left of it. There's no, you could not walk across it. There's no The metal kind of structure (laughs) is there, but you're right. It it looks like something you'd come across in a 
No yeah. plagues. And they, and, and it's got a beautiful, like, <laughs> delicate right. arch to it. But, of course, after the fire in 66, they removed most of the remaining planks, you know, so nobody can cross it. And more things in the timeline. Uh, back in the 1930s, during the Depression, the valley below was a homeless camp for a while. As Chris said earlier, it was the site of the still unsolved torso murders of that time. And um, in... In the 1950s, tension started to rise when the Garden Valley Public Housing Project went up on the other side of that bridge. And so that was kind of a, the beginning of the end for that. But yeah, I would love to see this restored. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting project. We'll have to see if they get the cash. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked about the danger of orphan gas wells a while back because Ohio has so many of them and their caps are deteriorating, which is kind of terrifying. What's the good news for taking care of some of these seriously dangerous wells, Layla? Well, the good news is that there there is some money to pay for a few of these. The U.S. Department of Interior has awarded $25 million in infrastructure bill funding to Ohio that the state will use to plug between 170 and 320 uh, abandoned oil and gas wells. The money is coming from $4.7 billion set aside to fix environmental problems that these orphan wells have caused. The wells can be found throughout the state, but the ones that will get capped with this money will be in the state's Appalachian region, where we see a lot of the pollution on account of them. These are just total environmental hazards, like you said. They contaminate the groundwater and just litter the landscape with all kinds of problems and harm harm the wildlife. And so the state will, will sample private and public water supplies that are within 500 feet of the orphan wells before and after the plugging to make sure that that the plugging is doing its job. Nationwide, they're going to plug and cap uh, more than 10,000 orphan wells and gas wells, though a 2021 analysis identified more than 129,000 orphan wells throughout the country. So this is great news, but, uh, you know, really, we're dealing with a sliver of the problem when you look at the big picture. Yeah, I'm surprised we haven't had more disasters result from this because, you know, when natural gas starts to leak into the air, explosions can occur. Yeah. Uh, and the faster exactly. we cap these more securely, the safer people will be. The story we talked about a few months ago was right in the middle of Cleveland. There was one in, that had been discovered uh, and fixed at no small expense. It's today in Ohio. We talk and talk about the day when we'll have solar panels on roofs across America, but they are prohibitively expensive and take years to pay for themselves. Laura, is there some good news in the recent bill passed by Congress that is supposed to help us become a greener nation? Yes. So the Inflation Reduction Act increases and extends these federal investment tax credits. They had been scheduled to be phased out or reduced starting, I believe, next year. So this bumps up the tax credit a little bit. It was 26%. Now it's 30% for residential solar installation that extends through 2032. And then it ramps down and phases out altogether. And so apparently the interest is through the roof. That's from Tristan Rader. He's a Lakewood councilman and the Ohio program director for Solar United Neighbors, which Wait for it. The acronym is SUN. It's a national nonprofit that organizes these solar co-ops across the country. So it's still, I mean, pricey to do this. The cost for installing a residential solar power system is about between $15,000 and $20,000. So your tax credit would be about $4,500 instead of the $3,900 before. 
Yeah, and every time I've looked at it, and I think a lot of people look at it, because Cuyahoga County has been pretty good about helping people understand these things. The, it's the so number of sunny years, here. You're like, yes, I need no, solar. No, <laughs> actually, they've, they've looked and they can know, tell you if your roof works. The problem is it takes years to to get the investment back. And so meanwhile, you're putting these things on your roof. So if you have to replace your roof, you got to take them all off and, and do things to make sure they don't leak. And I don't know that they've reached the point yet where, where for most people that this is uh, a, a money thing. I mean, it might be, you might feel good because you're doing something to make the planet greener, but for the cost uh, effectiveness that's just not there. This credit also works for some governments and nonprofits. It's going to make it easier for them to do that. So that makes more sense if you're looking at a larger scale and you're not just looking at your own pocketbook. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County sure could use some of this money or all of it. How much cash did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine say he is making available for local governments to build new jails or modernize old one? Lisa, it's not going to go that far. Yeah, even if we got all of that money he just released, it would not It would be a drop in the bucket, at least for the Cuyahoga County jail plans. But Governor Mike DeWine has released $51 million in grants for local governments to build new jails or renovate their current jail facilities. Uh, this is round two of funding that was set aside in the state's $3.5 billion capital budget, and it's distributed through the Ohio Jail Safety and Security Program. So the first round, $50 million was awarded to six jails in four counties, and then there was $10.1 million awarded to small jail-related projects in nine other counties, none of them in Northeast Ohio. So DeWine was saying that the goal of this money is to reduce recidivism with on-site mental health and substance abuse support and treatment. Layla, how far would that money go in Cuyahoga County? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I, mean, I don't even think it would build them a new kitchen. It's a, I mean, we're talking about spending a half billion on a new jail. But even if we right. were to try and and get renovate this jail just to last a few more years, I don't think fifty million would do it. It's it's almost like a drop in the bucket when you consider how many counties we have in this state and how run down jails generally are. It's not a big investment by Mike DeWine in making lives a little bit better for inmates and guards. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is an Ohio man facing a long prison sentence for trafficking in ginseng? Is that really the kind of product that can result in long sentences? Layla, this one jumped off at us last week. It's like, what? How is this a big crime? Yeah, I know. I, I honestly thought that this was not any kind of controlled substance or even anything more than like an herbal remedy with questionable benefits. Like I never even knew this was a real thing. But Tony Lee Kaufman, a 59-year-old of Birch River, West Virginia, is facing six counts in connection to acquiring illegally transported. Is it ginseng or ginseng? I don't know. What does our, our former and, radio person say? Lisa? It's ginseng. Okay. Ginseng. Okay. He's he's charged with receipt, acquisition, or purchase of illegally transported protected plants and falsification of records. The Justice Department says he had these American ginseng roots illegally transported from Ohio and then falsified records relating to their purchase. The law says that uh, he faces a to maximum total sentence of five years in prison per count, a fine of $20,000 per count or both. 
Apparently, American ginseng grows wild in shady, mature Appalachian forests, and the Ohio Department of Natural Resources refers to it as green gold. Who knew? I mean, ginseng is prized for its roots. It's been used for hundreds of years by the Cherokee and in Appalachian folk medicine, and and it's in demand for its use as with uh, herbal medicine. And it can sell for up to eight hundred fifty dollars a pound. So I guess that must be where he where he uh, is coming from here. Obviously, trying to make bank on on ginseng, but. I did not realize that it was such a crime to be transporting and, and uh, selling you know, ginseng. We have stiff penalties for people that trade in illegal drugs because you can show devastating effects. We have, we'll be talking tomorrow about a story that's predicting a massive round of overdose deaths in the coming year or two in, in Northeast Ohio. This isn't that. I mean, this seems like the yeah. penalty is way out of proportion to the crime. Yeah, the proponents of ginseng say it boosts the immune system and improves brain function and decreases inflammation and things like that. So this guy's going to go to prison for the rest of his life because he was trying to traffic ginseng? That's what kind of leapt out at us in the press release. It's like, wow, that's a lot of time to serve for trafficking in something that's not really that dangerous. I mean, what happens in Italy if people steal truffles? I wonder if it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> oh, well, interesting to, to what you find out once in a while from the federal government. It's today in Ohio. That does it for a Monday. Thanks for bearing with us. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. <laughs>